The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Really honored to be here. Say that again. Um, when it was asked, like, man, do you want to join us in a series of pray um, and then preach what's been on your heart? I was like, man, let me just preach what's been on my heart. And what's been on my heart is really the story that kind of unfolds in John 21. It's a rich story, a, a story where we, we see human tendency colliding with God's tenderness and, and what is produced in light of that. And the reason it's been on my heart is because, man, I've been in South Florida four and a half years or so um, as a church planter. And, man, give, coming here, everybody's like, why are you going there? That's where churches go to die. And then they're like, well, have you seen West Pines? They don't look dead to me, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, all of it was just because of the surrounding environment. People were like, man, this is just like dark. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, all that great stuff. And it's like, well, you know, there's some sin here. That's true. Some truth to that. Um, but it'll be like, man, this is so unchurched. But just being here and just, you know, just loving stories and loving people and loving cultures, what you see is that, man, like wired into the South Floridian experience is the Afro-Caribbean Latino context. And then even geographically, this did used to be uh, in the South, like, and had that cultural Bible Belt feel as well. And so wired into the fabric and history of our space is spirituality, right? And so what you start to see is, like, Jesus is a welcomed addition. He's just not necessary. And when he starts to make himself necessary because he wants to be more than just welcome, he doesn't just want to occupy space in the room. He wants priority preeminence, as Colossians would say, when he starts to do that, we're like, I'm good. Get away from me. And then we'll move him out and we'll walk away. And so what, what I've seen is not necessarily just this mass unchurched space, although that is present, but a lot of de-church where people are like, man, like that Jesus Christianity thing, it just doesn't do it for me anymore. They just walk away. They leave. They grow up in that space of spirituality. And then they're like, I'm good. I don't need it. And, and whether that's because Jesus tried to encroach upon freedom, occupying priority, or because there's some level of brokenness and wound and, and this Christianity thing really doesn't deal with the real issues of my heart, people have walked away. But when we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from wholeness in life. And what, what, I'm, what I'm burdened for is to see more stories like we see in John 21, it's a story of a man who, who's like us, who, who has some, some deep broken stuff in his life, in his heart, yet though he walks away, Jesus walks towards him in love and kindness to pull him back towards relationship and to produce in him a wholeness and a peace that is built around being restored. It is a story of restoration, and wherever you are on your journey, I pray that this story would bring life to you, especially if you're wandering and you just found yourself in here for the first time in a long time, that we could see the hands of a God who could do some pretty amazing stuff when we put our life in his hands. And so as we trek through John 21, the text itself produces Three questions that I believe are worth consideration regarding restoration, wholeness, brokenness, and such, and the collision of all of those with our lives 
and Jesus. And so we'll walk through it. That kind of shaped the movement of our time. We'll ask three questions, and it will bring out some truths that magnify Jesus along the way, if that's cool. Read with me. Um, John 21, let's, let's get it going. John 21, uh, verse 1, it reads like this. After this, uh, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, and the two others of his disciples were together. That's a lot of people, all right? Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped from the work and he threw himself into the sea. He plunged into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging a net full of fish for they were not far from, from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled a net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That's a lot. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now, this was the third time, third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know every information out there. You know every aspect of the world. You know every aspect of me. You know it all. You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, 
when gray hair has taken you over, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and, and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The word of God is blessed. Let's, let's get to work. So let me just set the context, what's happened here. There's a lot going on here. So the gospel of John is rich and it's robust and it's intended to produce rich and robust faith. So that's how the end of chapter 20 starts. It says that, that all of these things that were written included, there were some things that Jesus did but weren't included here, but every single thing included in the gospel of John is written so that you would believe in Jesus and by believing in him, by putting your faith and confidence in him, by trusting him, you would have life in his name. And so it is faith, belief that leads to life. And what's beautiful about that is it's faith that's not arbitrary, it's not just assumptions or thoughts, it's faith that is anchored in attributes regarding who God is and the claims he makes about life. And what we see in this text, in this story, is some rich attributes of who Jesus is. We're going to get there. But the story starts off with the anchor of all of the attributes, the anchor of all of the claims, the resurrection of Christ. That when you look at every other faith, it's all arguing philosophies and things like that. But when you look at Christianity, it is bathed and birthed from history. It orients around the person, Jesus, who had claims, who lived and he died, but he rose again to deal with the real issues of our life and bring us to relationship back with God. And the story starts off that after he has resurrected, so he's not Casper, He's not some ghost hovering out there. He's eating fish, right? He just had breakfast. I love Jesus because he's a foodie like me, you know what I mean? And so he's eating fish. After he's resurrected, he's having conversation with his disciples. This is the third time that he's revealed himself. So there's two other times where he's just revealing who he is, showing them about the future, a future that's birthed from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I told you, everything I commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Marching orders, go change the world with me. Go change the world with the gospel because the gospel changes people and people change the world. Go change the world from relationship. Go be changed. It's a great and glorious calling that sets up this story. And in the midst of this great, glorious calling to be transformed and then to go transform the world around us. Do you know what Peter says? I'm going fishing. I'm out. And you know what's heartbreaking about this? It's not just that he walks away from this great, glorious calling. It's that people walk away with him. Well, we're going fishing too. Isn't it always the case when you walk away from Jesus, you drag people with you? We're going fishing. Now, we're going to get to some of the whys behind his departure and, and why I believe he was leaving and what I think the text brings out. But one thing that we need to see from the beginning is this. He went fishing, caught nothing, 
Jesus enters into the scene because he's like, you're going fishing, I'm going fishing too, but you're fishing for fish, I'm fishing for your soul. What we see is that sometimes, oftentimes, Jesus will frustrate our plans so we could fulfill his. He had this great glorious plan for their lives. And Peter had this great glorious plan in his mind for his life. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to do what I knew. I'm going to be a fisherman again because it's comfortable and it's easy and it's safe. And Jesus said, I'm going to frustrate all of that, no fish. And so if you're in here and, and, and you feel like there's a ceiling on your life, might it be that Jesus is bringing some glorious, gracious frustration to make you fulfill something even better? So there's a ceiling that Jesus is putting on Peter and these disciples because he wants something even better for them. Going fishing, that's great. I'm going fishing. Two, he's walking away. He's leaving, and the question is why? Why would he leave? Now, I, I could think of several reasons why people would walk away, and they'll do this, well, I'm going fishing thing. I think the first often is disillusionment, disillusionment, where it's like you're, you're dissatisfied with, with the world around you, you're dissatisfied, and even, dare I say, disgusted with how things may be, so you're like, I'm like, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm going fishing. I'm watching that in our cultural moment and everything that's happening socially and politically. And everybody's just like, I just, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. So I'm out. So many of my close friends just watching them walk away from Jesus because they're disillusioned with the promises of God. If it's not disillusionment, often it's fear of the unknown. I don't really know how that's going to work itself out, so I'm going to go back to what's comfortable. I'm going to go back to what I can control. I'm that guy, you give me a blank canvas, and I just get jittery. I'm like, yeah, what are we going to do? Let's go take over the world, pinky in the brain. I'm just wired that way. That is not some of my friends. They're like, I, I need you to kind of stencil in some stuff, and then I'll color it in. The future makes them way more anxious. And anxiety about the future creates control issues in the present. Wise man once told me, you can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both at the same time. And maybe some of us just kind of walk away. We, we leave, we detour because we're fearful of the unknown. Another, well, and I think it's for Peter, is the bondage of shame. Where there's a moment in our story where we know we messed up. And everybody else knows we messed up as well. It's a visible failure. And so what happens is it, it, you, we move from, man, I did this to now I'm, I am this. That's, that's shame. And there's this prison. There's this wound. There's this deep abiding brokenness that now exists in our hearts. And so we're out. If I was to ask you the first question, it would be this. What's your I'm going fishing? If you were to leave, what would call you away? Would it be disillusionment? Would it be the fear of the unknown? Or would it be the brokenness and the bondage of shame? I think for Peter, it was a combination of all three, but specifically the bondage of shame. And here's why, verse 9 Verse 9 reads like this. Um, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire 
in place with fish laid out on it and bread. That's, that seems very obscure. If you detach it from the story of John and you detach it from Peter's story particularly. So Peter, Peter met, he had some tremendous highs with Jesus. If you're familiar with his story, where, where, where he's following faithfully, when he, he abandoned everything, he abandoned his, his fisherman life and his fishing business saying, man, you know what? In comparison, there's something even more worthwhile for my life. It's following this Nazarene man. I'm gonna follow him forever. And he has some highlights, walking on water being one of them. Anybody in here walk on water before? No? Awesome. Peter did. Not just Jesus. Peter walking on water with this man who was more than a man, Christ. Highlights. He had some hard times and some low times as well. And one of the lowest moments in his life, dare I say, the lowest moment in his life documented for us was found in John 18. John 18 is the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter. So Jesus is going to the cross to die for sins and create a bridge back to God and to bring comprehensive restoration and peace that's coming later. He is going to the cross for that end, and his pathway to the cross is going to lead him to being betrayed by those closest to him, namely Peter. And so he looks Peter in the face and he says, Peter, Satan, your enemy, the prince and power of the world around you, he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to do stuff to your soul and to your life where there's no more weight to you. He wants you. But I've prayed for you that he won't have you. And when you fail, restore your brothers. Not if you fail. When you fail, be strengthened and restored them. Because the way you're going to fail is you are going to betray me and deny that you know me three times. And there's going to be a rooster that's going to crow after you do it. And Peter brashed, <laughs> sure, Jesus. I would never do that, right? Isn't he like us, though? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, haven't you had those moments where you're like, I would never do that. And then it's like 2 a.m. and you're like, how did we get here again? Right? Never do that. But in John 18, Jesus' words come to pass because Jesus isn't a liar. And Peter does just that. He betrays him. But the scene around his betrayal is fascinating. He's following Jesus from afar. He gets up close. It's a cold night, and he starts to warm himself around a charcoal fire. Only the other time that appears in the whole entire gospel of John and the Bible is John 18 and right here, this charcoal fire, where around this charcoal fire, he's warming himself and betraying his Lord. And you know what the first thing that meets him when he gets from this 100-yard swim because he was energized because he saw Jesus and he has this gusto in his soul now. He's like, that's my Lord. I'm coming for him. And he gets out of this water, and what's in front of him? That same charcoal fire. You know that we're sensory beings, right? And that we store stuff in emotional folders, right? Think about those moments of your life that are hard and they're tender, and you can almost remember what's happening to the T that day right? Where were you 9-11? I remember. 
I remember to the T where I was when my wife called me and told me my little brother was murdered. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was in my office. We're sensory beings. And so we have association with different environments. Walk up to this charcoal fire, and he's like, oh. Oh, we're going to go there? But that's the beauty of Jesus, is that in order for us to be made whole, we actually have to deal with the wounds, because if we don't, we don't have wholeness at all, or peace, which is what wholeness is in the scriptures of shalom. It's the coming together of all of life's realities and dynamics in a real, robust way. Peace, we don't have that apart from dealing with the wound. We have something else. So I've been married for 10 years, as Bishop Barnes said, and um, you know, early on in our marriage, the first, first week of our marriage, we actually went honeymooning here in Miami, came back to Texas, where I was born and raised, the great country of Texas, you know what I mean? And so, like, I'm in Texas with, um, with my wife, and, you know, if you've been married, you know that you want to start the marriage off well, and that usually means a whole bunch of fun stuff. And food is my love language. I am a foodie. I'm a food snob as well, so I judge people based on what they eat. I can't help it. God is working on my soul. But um, my wife, who's amazing, like, I won in the whole situation. I won her. Like, she got the raw end of the deal. But to set off our marriage well, she created um, breakfast for us. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And so she made these eggs. So I like eggs. But I was like, man, those aren't like my mom's eggs. And just as a rule of thumb, that's not what you say. Like, you just, if you're a husband, don't ever say that. That was terrible. But I was young. I was like 23. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, where are the tomatoes and the salt and pepper? You messed up. Now, um, I could smell these eggs. It was like, oh, this is like great. It's going to be good. It just didn't taste the way I thought. And, and then I smelt this other aroma. So like, I'm, again, from this great country of Texas where there's brisket and there's Tex-Mex and there's all of this carnivorous stuff. And so I smelt this aroma of sliced slain pig. Now, on there, there was this strip of bacon. It looked a little different, but it was, it was there. And I was like, oh, I took a bite out of it. And I was like, what is this? What is this nonsense that's on my plate? Now, I said that in my head, the nonsense part, but I did say, what is this out loud, which also is not good. And she's like, oh, this is turkey bacon. I was like, that exists? Like, like what is turkey? Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, like why would you do that? You know what I mean? Like, and, and really, it, it looked like bacon, smelled like it, but it tasted like cardboard. And I was like, babe, you know, I still love you, so we're going to grow from this moment, all right? But it had me fooled. It, it looked like something, but it actually wasn't. It was a charade, if you will. There is a type of peace that is no peace at all. It is a type of peace that just says you have it when you avoid conflict. Did you know that avoiding conflict actually weakens relationships? It doesn't strengthen them. But we have this in our mind that if we really want peace, we need to just cut out conflict and cut off people. We'll cancel them out because we have a cancel culture in our cultural moment. Oh, you did what? Canceled. Not buying his CDs anymore. And we just, so we do that in our lives. It's synthetic peace, and synthetic peace is a charade. And Jesus, being tender, says, I have something better than synthetic peace, so we have to deal with this wound, charcoal fire. Question two, what's your charcoal fire? What is that thing where it reminds you of where you failed the Lord? What is that wound, that area 
that you've kind of boxed in your heart that you're like, man, God, we can go a lot of places, but we're not going there again. That's where God wants to deal with you and me and do the work of healing and restoration. And he does just that. Notice verse 15. Notice how he's engaging Peter. It's beautiful. He says, when they had finished breakfast, because Jesus was a foodie, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He, he said to him a, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, imagine what's happening in Peter's mind, right? You know, I'm excited. This is Jesus the Lord, 153 fish. This reminds me of what happened when you first revealed yourself to me. Oh, so we're going to have this good intimacy again. So much so, I'm so excited, so juiced up that I plunge into the sea. I go 100 yards, quick, fast, in a hurry. I get out. First thing I see is charcoal fire. We're really going to go there, Jesus? We just can't pretend like nothing happened? You really you're just going to bring that up? Bring up the past? Right? And then, in the midst of this breakfast, he has a conversation. And in this conversation, three times, he's asking Peter, do you love me? And we can see his emotion. I'm grieved. Are we really going to do this again? This three, these three again? You're going to bring up the past again? But this is vintage Jesus, vintage grace. Because here's, here's what happens when we, when we bring up the past, right? When we bring up the past, no matter who you are, you become a professional lawyer. If you've ever been in any relationship and there's some conflict, there's some tension, when you bring up the past, it's like, oh, you remember when you did? You just start shooting from the hip. And you're just ready. You're ready to assassinate that person and to bury them with facts of what they did and who they are. Right? Am I lying? No. We all do it. This is grace. When grace brings up the past, it's to bury it, not us. It's to bury the past. Notice how comprehensive it is. If we're sensory people, every time he sees a charcoal fire, every time there's a rooster, you know somewhere he's going to be like, oh, this is what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm now marked by my sin. Yet, three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know everything. I know I know everything. But you need to know what I know, which is that I love you. You're not going to be marked by what you did. You're going to be marked by who I called you to be and what I've called you to do. To feed your brothers. To strengthen them. And to be the rock, Peter, that I said that you were. Oh, it's comprehensive. It's vintage grace. It's Jesus dealing with the whole human. It's a better picture of restoration. It's Restoration that's deeply personal, right? And so he restored Peter in a unique way. Peter sinned in a very public way, and now this is a very 
public restoration. Peter sinned by betraying him three times, and Jesus is affirming his love, not just Peter's love for him, but Jesus' love for Peter. He's affirming it. It's a very personal restoration, which is biblical restoration. It's personal. God restores us individually, but then he also restores us relationally to him and to others. It's relational. He's bringing him back to the heart of God and bringing him back into right relationship with others. But it's also directional, and I like that, because you won't find a self-help book that doesn't talk about just having this peace so that you could be good. That's why transcendental meditation is what it is. It's not prayer, but it's this way. I just need to just own my way to goodness and rightness and wholeness. As if the goal of goodness and rightness and wholeness is just existence. The goal of goodness and rightness and wholeness is not just for us, it's for other people. And so it's super directional. He, he says, look, follow me. Follow me. I've restored you. I've made you whole so that you can continue to walk with me. Follow me. And the beauty and gift of Jesus is that he is not a liar. He is building out this wholeness. He is building out this restoration. He is building out a better shalom and peace where things are as they should. And as he's building it out, he's not building it apart from suffering. He says that when you get old, when those gray hairs overtake you, Peter, somebody's going to guide you where you don't want to go, signifying the death that you're going to have where you are going to follow me to the end. And what we see in that is that even in the restoration and the wholeness that Jesus doesn't promise a painless life. He promises a purposeful one where there's peace and there's relationship and there's togetherness. Follow me into a purposeful life where you are restored and you are an agent of that same restoration. There's peace to be had. But it's peace not necessarily by removing things, but by having things in the right place and not just things a person. Colossians, which is where we um, close and land, I think brings that out way, way better. Um, Verse 15, it it starts off like this. Colossians 1.15, it says, he is the image, him being Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, all things, he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you see this pathway again? It's this pathway where all things that are broken are being mended and all things that are wrong are being made right, but it's this pathway through blood, shed blood on the cross. What's What's beautiful is what he's, what he's getting at is there is a presence of Jesus that produces peace and wholeness. 
Verse 19 in Colossians brings this out. In him all things hold together. So I am a um, gamer. This is what I do. And so spades, dominoes, 2K, let's get it. I just do that. Growing up, my family, we're a family of gamers, family of competitive people. So we don't play for fun, we play to win. All right, now, one of the games, <laughs> one of the games that we would play to win um, was Jenga. Now, has anybody ever played Jenga in this place? Yes? It's like the cheapest Christmas game, so everybody got it growing up. And so, but with Jenga, right? <laughs> That was for me. Uh, uh, with, with, with Jenga, the goal of this game is to be the last person standing. And so you just start pulling out different pieces, and then you place it on the top, and you know, hint, hint, if you pull from the middle, you usually win. It's like percentage, it's probability, but you pull out different pieces. But as you're pulling out different pieces, inevitably, you get to this one piece where you start to poke and prod at it, and everything starts to shift a little bit. You're like, oh, man, like, I can't pull it out. But we play touch and play, so if you touch it, you got to pull it. And so there's that one piece that if you, if you pull it out, everything else crumbles. There's all these other pieces that you can pull out, and you're good to go. But you get to that one piece, you remove it, and it all comes down. It's all pieces on the floor. And what Jesus is getting out he, like he, he wants us to see what finality is that there are certain things that you can remove and, and you'll still be good. And you can still have peace. You could, you could remove money from a bank account and still have wholeness and peace. You could remove marriage and, and live a single and fruitful life and die like Jesus did, a single man, and still have peace. But you remove Jesus, you remove the gospel, the story of his glorious love and his power and truth and his ability to mend what is broken and make right what is wrong and renew all things forever. You remove that, no peace. The peace God wants to bring is bound to the person of Jesus. It's bound to him, relationship with him, walking with him, knowing him, engaging with him. What's your thoughts? What do you like? Can we walk together? That's the peace that puts the pieces of life in the right places. And Peter is now left with a decision to try to go back fishing or to move forward in faith and afford in faith to go out and say, I will feed your lambs. I will tend to the sheep. I will care for my brothers. I will express my love for you. I will follow you faithfully is an act of courage to risk, to risk, to say I'm going to give that part of my heart that was bound by shame back to you, oh God. Heal me beside this charcoal fire. It's a risk of courage to say, I do not know the future. I cannot control it. But you know what I can control? Running to you. It's a risk to say, though I may be disillusioned for a moment, I will not deny you. I will not make truth bend to me, but I will bend to truth, to risk. It's a step of courage, which leads to the question, 
in closing, what would your next step of courage be? Whatever journey that you're on, especially if you're on a journey of restoration where you know and other people see it. And you're like, I just need to be made whole again. Maybe the next step of courage is the fact that you're actually here right now. And that's to be celebrated. Maybe the next step of courage is to move from the fringes of community where you're just seen to the center of community where you're known and you serve. Maybe the next step of courage is to see these questions, what's the I'm going fishing, what's the charcoal fire, and, and, and see that in somebody else's story and like, man, it seems like God is doing something with them and your next step of courage is to go pursue them like Jesus pursued Peter. What's your next step of courage? Whatever it is, the promise is a person who will walk with you, Jesus the Christ, and a person who brings peace with his blood and his life. It's a step that we don't have to take alone. Will you take it? Let me pray. God, um, we, uh, we are surrounded by your patience and your grace. We are all products of it, Lord. We, uh, we exist because you're kind. We continue because you're good. Where can we go where you don't see? Where can we go to outrun your love? Nowhere. So God, as, as you poke and you prod and you pull and you press into the deepest parts of our hearts, God, would you continue to refresh us? And would you, would you for if not just a moment, but forever, would you just press this story on us, Lord God, that we're reminded that we could come home and that we could walk with you and that there's restoration regardless of where we've been or what we've done and that you are ambitious about being tender and compassionate and truthful because you're good. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.